You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, If I were the conspiracy-minded type, if I was the kind of person who would treat the common cold with mercury or leeches or bleeding because someone I worked with once at a cold stone creamery in high school posted something on Facebook about these miracle cures, and I do have a cold right now, colds, remember colds? I left the house for what felt like the first time in two years and promptly Got a cold, a cold I am treating with DayQuil and tea and toast and television, not ivermectin or bleeding or leeches. Anyway, if I were the conspiracy-minded type, I would think there was some secret coded message buried in a story the Washington Post published last week by Josh Dossie and Michael Scherer. It's a really long-ass piece about how Trump has demanded that everyone in the GOP embrace the big lie, and about how everyone in the GOP has embraced the big lie. That lie being that the 2020 election was stolen. The big lie is a classic GOP move, a GOP move that predates Trump's political career by decades. Accuse your opponent of what you're guilty of, or in Trump's case, accuse your opponent of the crime you attempted to commit yourself. From accusing Democrats of being elitists while heaping tax cuts on billionaires to Trump accusing Dems of stealing the election he tried and failed to steal as he gears up to try to steal the 2024 election, accusing your opponents of your crimes, that's what Republicans do. And Democrats, what do they do? Fucking Democrats, they stand around in Washington doing nothing for fear that any move to prevent Trump from stealing the 2024 election will invite accusations that Democrats are the ones trying to steal the 2024 election. Accusations Trump and the GOP are going to make anyway, so might as well, you know, do something, Democrats. Anyway, if I were the conspiracy-minded type, I would think there was a coded message buried in the Washington Post story about Trump's speech at a big donor shindig in Iowa last week. Because it can't be a coincidence that this was the 45th paragraph in a story about our 45th president. Unprompted, Trump brought up an unsubstantiated claim he had interactions with prostitutes in Moscow before he ran for president. I'm not into golden showers, Trump told the crowd. You know, the great thing, our great first lady, that one, she said. I don't believe that one. First, it's sad, isn't it, the way Trump pretends Melania still speaks to him? And I guess she believed all the other ones? But second, and most importantly, there's a secret message buried in there. There's got to be. I don't know what it is. If I had the galaxy brain of a QAnutter, always finding secret messages and numbers and patterns, maybe I could tease it out. But while I don't know what the secret message is, I do know what the secret message is not. The secret message is not that Trump isn't into golden showers. That man is definitely into piss. Yes, he denied it, like Hillary Clinton denies eating babies. But that denial, bringing up golden showers during a political rally— out of the blue, just to let everyone know you're not into golden showers, and then dragging your wife into it, apropos of nothing? I'm going to drop a little wisdom here right now, a little free advice, my specialty. If you don't want people to think you're into piss, don't tell people you're not. Don't go out of your way to tell people you're not. 
just shut up about this. Look, even if he's into piss, which he definitely is, I'm glad Trump denied it. Because if Trump confirmed he was into piss or golden showers, which is what people over 50 call piss play. And can we pause here for a moment to consider that? It's interesting, linguistically, decades ago, people into piss came up with a name for piss play that was equal parts euphemism and aggrandizing rhetorical alchemy. Piss is yellow, but gross. Gold is yellow, but desirable. So golden showers, not piss play. Who doesn't want to be showered with gold? Today, people who like piss, younger people, hipper people, queerer people, they just call it piss, not gold. You see guys walking around Folsom SF in rubber shirts that say piss on them or urinal on them. And no, not all those guys are gay. If you've been to Folsom SF, a big fetish street party, you know that it is at this point at least half straight people. Anyway, forgive me for all of these digressions. I am not well. I have a cold. I am not well in ways that are additional to all the usual ways that I am not well. Anyway, if Donald Trump is into piss play, which he definitely is, we don't want him to confirm that for us unambiguously. We want him to deny it, at least officially, even if his denial really is a kind of bank shot confirmation. Because if he were to publicly embrace it, if he got up on a stage in Iowa and said, I like my showers like I like my toilets, golden, you know what happens next? Piss is the new ivermectin, the new hydroxychloroquine. They'll all be doing it. Like wearing masks and getting vaccinated, piss will instantly become partisan, something MAGA people do. Sean Hannity will be knocking back pints of piss on Fox News, and Tucker Carlson will be pissing on Laura Ingram at CPAC to show fealty to Donald J. Trump, orange Julius Caesar. Look, I'm not into piss, and that is me denying it, I realize, but not out of the blue, not apropos of nothing. Piss is what we are talking about here. But I don't want Trump to ruin piss play for all my friends and all the guys I know out there, gay and straight and bi and pan, who are into it and who've spent a lot of money on rubber gimp suits with piss written in giant letters across their backs. Those outfits aren't cheap. Trump destroyed our brains, trashed the presidency, and may yet destroy democracy in America. We can't let him ruin piss play, too. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and joining us on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. Twice as much show, more questions, more guests, no ads. Dr. Justin Lay Miller returns to the show to talk about the research he's been doing throughout the pandemic into how the pandemic has been impacting our sex lives. All that coming up today. Hey, Dan. I'm calling with a sex success story. I'm bisexual, have enjoyed fucking women with strap-ons before. It's been a while and I've always wanted to peg a guy and nobody I've been with has ever wanted to, but this guy I've been with for about eight months who really has not done things like that before, sort of slowly worked his way into lots of kinky shit with me, finally like asked me to do it and knew that I wanted to. And we made a whole sexy weekend. We spent like hundreds of dollars on a hotel room and went out to fancy dinner and I got like two different holsters and he picked out the dildo and I ended up fucking him in the ass for like 45 minutes. I was wearing these wide fishnets and this sexy holster and he just fucking loved it and it was so hot and he really liked when I leaned back 
and he would like bend up his legs and I would hold them. And now he just keeps asking for more. He just wants me to fuck him in the ass again as soon as possible. And we even filmed it. So we're going to watch the film of ourselves, you know, me ass fucking him for the first time um, while we have sex again sometime soon, probably while I fuck him in the ass some more. So really happy about it. He told me recently that it seems like I was born to fuck with a dick and I agree. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. And did I hear that correctly? Did you say that you filmed this? Hmm. Humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Go there to find out everything you need to know about submitting that movie that you made of your sex success with your hot new boyfriend. Humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Your film, your success could be in next year's Humpfest, Hump 2022. All right. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing. Whether you submit or not, we appreciate the call. We appreciate the share. If anyone else out there listening has a sexual success story that you would like to share with us, give us a call, share your story. We might start next week's Lovecast with yours. Hi, Dan. Uh, I grew up in a conservative fundamentalist evangelical Christian household in eastern Washington state in a town with about a thousand people. I came out in my early 20s and it wasn't great. Even though I was at college at WSU at the time, I was afraid that my parents would want me to go to conversion therapy. So when I came out, I established a boundary. Uh, I told them that if they tried to pray the gay away, that I wouldn't be a part of the family anymore and I would walk out. They respected that and did not try to pray for me, at least in person. Uh, but still through the tears, uh, they told me that I was going to hell. That really hurt, but I appreciated that they respected my request and that they were honest. To deal with this, I dropped out of college, moved to Las Vegas to be an acrobat. I did that for a while, got an entry-level IT job, went back to school at night. I got my bachelor's degree, uh, moved around. I've lived in Washington, Nevada, California, and Colorado. Um, and I also then earned my master's degree. So this year actually marks a decade since I left my home state. And I visited my parents approximately 15 times during that stretch. They have never come to see me once during this time I've had two significant long-term relationships, and during this time, while they did know about my boyfriends, whenever I would bring them up in conversation, or anything for that matter that related to me being gay, they would shut down. Like Literally, my mom would just stop talking because she didn't know what to do or say. I thought that my story was just kind of the way it was of the standard parents condemning their gay children um, and having a strained relationship. However, this past year, all the pieces seem to come together, and it turns out that I am actually autistic. Uh, what people would know is like Asperger's syndrome. I'm highly intelligent and intellectual, but I lack understanding of some basic human relationship functions. Learning this about myself was such a relief, but also a gut punch. I tried talking with my older sister about this and didn't get anywhere fast. And then I realized that everyone in my immediate family truly believes that I'm an asshole. And in truth, they're probably right. Because I don't understand what's going on a lot of times in interpersonal interactions. I do sometimes do things that are kind of assholeish and I don't, and I don't know it. I've always been proud of myself for the fact that I was able to get on my own two feet when I came out, you know, and I stayed strong. But now I'm afraid that I was actually the majority of the problem when it came to my family relationships. Dan, I feel very lost right now and I don't know what to do or if I need to eat crow. So in the decade that you've been away, in the decades since you got out of the hell, frankly, in my opinion, that is Eastern Washington, which is where my husband's from. You finished college, you got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. 
you had a successful career in Las Vegas as an acrobat. So you worked in the arts, which is a collaborative endeavor. Uh, you were in two long-term relationships and you've been home to see your family in just 10 years, 15 times. Seems to me the two things can be true here, that you can have Asperger's syndrome. You sound like you have sort of high functioning Asperger's syndrome and your family can still be a problem, can still be assholes. You know, I've always been of the opinion, I've always observed that to be an asshole, to commit an act of assholery really requires intent, self-awareness, foreknowledge, malice. And you, until you got this diagnosis, there was nothing malicious or intentional about your failure to pick up on certain social cues or the ways in which your failure to pick up on social cues that inform interpersonal human relationships may have impacted your interactions with family members. So you're not guilty of assholery. There was a missing piece. There was a missing diagnosis here. There was something that needed to be on the table that needed to be discussed and that your relationship with your family members needed to be filtered through. It needed to be accommodated, understood, and it wasn't. And just the fact that you are engaged in this kind of introspection now, that you're worried that you might be to blame here, or the Asperger's might be to blame here, I think that by itself is evidence that you aren't and weren't the asshole. The Asperger's may still have impacted your relationship with your family members. It is something to discuss with them. It doesn't get them off the hook, though. Their inability to acknowledge the fact that you were in a relationship, their refusal to come and see you ever in the decade when you went to see them 15 times in that decade. And who knows, maybe they felt that you were coming home so often, 15 times in 10 years is actually quite a lot, that they didn't need to travel to Las Vegas or wherever else you were living to see you. That said, you know, your son goes to Las Vegas, joins the circus as an acrobat, meets with some success. You go and you cheer your son on. And they didn't do that for you. Even if at a Thanksgiving dinner once in a while, you missed a social cue and you did something that seemed curt or rude. Now that you know, you can look back on those events, those incidents, and your family members should be able to look back on those events and those incidents and understand them through the prism of your diagnosis. You weren't being an asshole. You were suffering with undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome. You were doing the best you could. Doesn't sound like your family was doing the same. Doesn't sound like they were doing the best they could. There's still time. They can maybe one day come around. Maybe one day, maybe after you apologize to them for the ways in which you may have interacted with them that seemed rude and it was just about your inability to read these social cues, they may be inspired to apologize to you for the horrible things that they said about you going to hell because you're gay and for the things they didn't say and the things they didn't do. You failed them due to something beyond your control, Asperger's syndrome, undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome. They failed you because they loved their imaginary friend or a particular interpretation of that particular imaginary friend more than they loved their own son. Yeah. If anyone was the asshole here, it was them. You can apologize if you think you need to, and maybe you do need to. You can role model what it's like to give an apology to a family member if 
because of the Asperger syndrome. You offended them at times and perhaps offended them without realizing you were offending them and without picking up on the fact that you had offended them. And then dot, 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 leave some space in that conversation. Create a little vacuum when you're with your parents next that hopefully they will rush in and fill with their own apologies. And if they don't, you aren't obligated to go home. And please look around, getting a bachelor's degree, getting a master's degree, two successful long-term relationships, a successful stint in the arts. You're obviously able to relate to people and people like you. So I don't think you're an asshole at all times to all people. And so really in this exchange with you and your family, if I was going to Give the asshole award to anyone based on what I know, based on what I can infer from your history. I would give it to mom and dad and your sister and everybody else back there in that small shitty town in eastern Washington. Hey, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old bisexual male living in the Inland Northwest. So I've been dating this girl for about seven months. And I fell in love with her. I fell in love with her and end up saying, I love you around four months in roughly. And so kind of waiting the past couple months for her to say something or kind of mold over. And eventually I asked her basically, Hey, how do you feel about me? Kind of situation. Um, or asked her if she loved me. And her response was that she basically doesn't feel like she can uh love anyone right now and doesn't really feel strongly towards me at all which was an answer i'm prepared for but i guess the part where i'm confused and i need help is i'm not really sure where to go forward because she doesn't want to break up she still wants to like date and stuff but i guess just she doesn't love me and she won't ever. And so I'm kind of confused whether this is like a kind of a price of admission thing where I enjoy the relationship on my end and just kind of deal with it or whether I break up with her and try to find someone who does feel the same way about me. I'm confused that you're confused. She told you she doesn't think she could love anyone right now, which sounds like that white lie bullshit. It's not you. It's me. She also told you that she doesn't imagine a future where maybe she could get into a place where she could love someone. And if she could get to that place, she still can't imagine loving you. Huh. So this does not seem to me like a price of admission issue. It's not like you're putting up with something about her or her personality because the relationship is so good and there's love there, uh, you're really kind of debasing yourself by accepting this relationship, by continuing on in this relationship. There's a certain way that you feel about her. You love her romantically. You are open to her in that way. And she is just not open to you in that way. And yet, and yet she wants for the time being, until someone she could love comes along, she wants to continue to date you so that she's not bored to fill the hours, to fill her pussy. I don't know what it is that she wants filled or wants done 
in the meantime, until someone better comes along or until she gets better, until she gets to a place where she could love someone. But she's already told you that even if she gets to that place, the someone that she could love or might love isn't going to be you. So you need to ask yourself, I guess, if you can build a firewall around your heart, if you can detach, if you can fall out of love with this woman and just enjoy what there is to enjoy for the time being in sort of the same spirit that she's enjoying what there is to enjoy about you for the time being, the companionship, maybe the sex is great. Maybe you have some mutual interests that you enjoy talking about or pursuing together. Maybe there's something there and you can frame this as a, obviously going to be an STR, a short-term relationship, and get out of it what you could get out of it as you look around, perhaps, as she may be looking around, perhaps, for someone else that you could love and who could love you back. If I were you, and you're asking for my advice, I'm just going to project myself into your experience. If I were you, I would go. I would Pull up my pants, pack up my dick, and get the fuck out of there. The longer you stick around, I think the worse the hurt and the rejection is going to get over time. And then when she does inevitably give you your walking papers, send you away, tell you she doesn't want to date you anymore because she wants to be alone, or as I think is more likely, someone else has appeared on the horizon that she imagines she might love or already does love, oh, that's really going to hurt. You asking her if she loved you after you told her that you loved her and waited for months, that had to hurt. It's going to hurt a whole hell of a lot worse if she ends this relationship such as it is two years from now because she's fallen in love with someone else. So I would encourage you to end this now. Hi, Dan. I had a question about opening and closing a relationship when it started as an open relationship. My current partner and I have been together for two years, and we started out as an open relationship. That's actually a swinging couple, and we had a lot of fun doing that. The issue that we ended up having was that oftentimes I would set rules, and my rules would be more restrictive than his rules preferably would be always um, like, hey, this person actually insulted me at one point before we got together. And so I don't want you to fuck her or, hey, we just had this big argument. So even though we're going to the swinging event because our friends are there, I really don't want you to have sex with anyone today and neither will I or uh, and we would have these sort of discussions or yeah, any number of things quite a few times more than five, we, we would agree to a rule or something like that before a party, or um, it would just be a longstanding rule that he would break, and it would really hurt me. And he just doesn't, it never really seemed to understand that. And eventually it got to the point where I was just not comfortable being in, in an open relationship with him anymore because the trust was just not there. And we've talked about how he may have impulse control issues around sex, and that might be why he's had so many issues with that. But the issue now is that we're now in a monogamous relationship, and we have been for a few 
two months and he is not happy and he's very resentful and carries a lot of bitterness towards me for ruining his sex life and lying to him about our relationship because it started as open and I just told him, hey, I can't do this anymore. I carry a lot of bitterness that he broke my trust so many times and I feel like he's blaming me for closing the relationship when when really it's his own fault. And we both have so much bitterness toward each other. It's been really hard to move forward. And at this point, we both really love each other and are very connected, but we have so much negativity towards each other that it's almost just like living with a friend at this point. Well, this relationship sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to do my best here to save it. This relationship where you don't feel like you can trust him because he has impulse control issues around women who've insulted you. And he spends most of his time now that you're in a closed relationship, now that you guys are being monogamous, accusing you of ruining his sex life and to pass the time between dinner and bed because you guys aren't fucking each other anymore either. You're living together, basically, you say, as roommates, you just sit there assigning blame. It's his fault because he couldn't honor because of his impulse control issues, the rules that you would set, including, I'm sorry, kind of ridiculous rules. Like we're going to a swinging party, but we're not going to have sex with other people. We're just going there to see our friends. Seems to me if he has impulse control issues and you knew it before you went to those parties, you don't go to the buffet if you're not going to eat anything from it. You don't take somebody who really loves to eat to a buffet and tell them that they're going to be in big trouble if they sample the hors d'oeuvres, you just you, you don't go out to eat in, in that instance. You guys should have skipped the fucking parties. The parties when you guys had had a conflict, when you guys had had a fight and you weren't allowed because you laid it down. You weren't allowed to fuck anybody else and neither was he. The parties were just a, a bad idea. You should have skipped them and stayed away and only gone to the parties when you were feeling it and maybe pre-screened events to make sure that no one that you didn't want him to fuck was going to be there. The only way out here is to either let him fuck who he wants to fuck, not make rules that you know he's going to break and thus generate conflict in the relationship, which, you know, seems unfair to you that you're not allowed to lay down any boundaries. You're not allowed to ask him to honor those boundaries to demonstrate that you're his first priority but if he's just going to sit around and sulk afterwards because he didn't get to fuck who he wants to fuck or he has to be monogamous, he doesn't want to be monogamous, I don't think you can save this relationship. I don't think there's much of a relationship left to save unless recriminations and finger pointing amounts to a relationship. I don't think it does. To make this work. You're going to have to let go of or seriously relax the rules you lay down for him now that you know who he is and know what he's, I guess, incapable of. I'm not endorsing that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not endorsing that. Uh, open relationships work because the two people in, uh, you know, an open relationship with you know two primary partners, it works because everybody respects the rules and the boundaries. That is necessary for an open relationship to survive. That wasn't a part of your open relationship. And again, I just come back to, I don't see how this survives. I don't see how I save it. I don't see why you want me to save it. I don't see why you're still in it. You say you love him. He loves you. That's great. Obviously 
that wasn't enough to make this work. There is a fundamental disconnect here, an issue of kind of basic sexual incompatibility. He wants to move through the world without rules, and you want to be able to lay rules down, and that's reasonable, and have them honored, have them respected. You know he's incapable of doing that. So, again, you have two options. Blow up all your rules, throw them away, or blow this up. Throw it away. Doesn't mean you have to exit each other's lives. Doesn't mean you have to be enemies. You can love each other out of this relationship as you wind it down, which is what I think you should do. Hey, Dan. White, 40s, Midwest guy here, gay guy. And I uh, had a question, maybe that's kind of about consent, um, but is certainly uh, at least about etiquette, about a, a hookup that I just left, actually. So I met this guy on Sniffies, and we had coordinated a kind of like, you know, lights out, blindfold, anonymous scene. And I uh, just went over there, and we did that, and it was great. It was a lot of fun. But on my way out, I noticed, I recognized just some, some very, like, memorable art installation that he had in his apartment that I remember from the one time that I had been there before. I don't know him well, um, and I just met him recently. So, you know, I didn't get a good look at his face really during our play, but then afterwards I, I just kind of noticed this thing and was like, oh, shit. So anyway, now I'm in a place where we kind of are in like a different dynamic with our agreement to the scene. You know, I, he's no longer anonymous to me, but I am still anonymous to him. So I just didn't know if that kind of violated any... I don't know anything at all. Um, and if I should just not, maybe not worry about this or if I should tell him. Well, aren't you a conscientious, anonymous ass fucker? I don't see the problem here. I don't see the violation here. You didn't search his apartment looking for his ID while he was blindfolded and in bed waiting for you or while you were on your way out of the apartment. You didn't stalk him on the internet. You didn't go through drawers trying to figure out who he was as you entered and exited his apartment after you entered and exited him, you saw a conspicuous piece of art and you put two and two together and realized that you knew who he was and that you'd met him before. Okay. Well, if this is supposed to be a strictly anonymous scene, that might be something you have to disclose to him before the next time he has you over. If indeed there is going to be a next time that he has you over you can say to him in the spirit of anonymous play, look, I saw something in your apartment and I think I know who you are. You don't know who I am, so we can still have an anonymous hookup. He might think that's sexy or it might ruin it for him if he knows that you know who he is. But a lot of people who enjoy this kind of anon hookup, these anon scenes, part of what is arousing for them is the thought of moving through the world and maybe – Somebody who came over when they were blindfolded and got to see, you know, most of them, most of their face, except for what the blindfold covers, uh, might run into them somewhere and may recognize them. And he'll be sitting there, maybe, for example, placing an order and the waiter will look at him and the waiter will go, oh, God, I fucked that dude. And he won't know. And for some people into this kind of scene in particular, that's what's sexy about it. The idea that out there in the world – you know, moving through the bars or moving through restaurants or at the gym, someone who used you blew a load in your ass anonymously 
recognizes you and you can't recognize them because you were the blindfolded one, or he was in this instance, the blindfolded one. I think as a point of etiquette, if he invites you over again, perhaps you disclose this, that you know who he is, that you recognized him. And then he gets to make the call. He gets to make an informed choice about whether you still qualify as an anonymous play partner on his side. And my hunch is if the sex was good, if your dick felt good in him, you're going to get another invite. Hi, Tim. I'm a bisexual woman in her late 20s living in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm in a long-term relationship with a man, and I love him very much. <laughs> but a lot of questions about my sexuality have come up during the course of our relationship. There's a myriad of reasons why I didn't accept the fact that I'm not exactly straight sooner, namely mental health, uh, a religious upbringing in Alabama. It's been an ongoing conversation with my boyfriend, who, of course, wants a threesome. But I really do not want my first sexual experience with a woman to involve unicorn hunting. Um, Last weekend, my boyfriend expressed that he'd be okay with me experimenting alone, as long as he knows the logistics and communication is open. He's uncomfortable with me pursuing a relationship, but sex, especially if it's not an ongoing arrangement, is actually on the table. I'm excited about this, but the issue I'm now faced with is where the hell do I go from here? I got the permission, but I don't really know what to do with it. I'm not planning to go out and meet strangers at bars, considering the pandemic hell we still find ourselves in. Apps feel like the most likely way. But how do I express to potential masses that I'm in a serious relationship and I'm just looking for what is essentially a one-night stand? It feels like I'd be essentially using another human being for the sake of my own selfish self-exploration, which feels wrong. I'm also somebody that has historically required a great deal of intimacy and trust in sexual situations, and I don't really know how to establish that, given these terms. That said, I, I really want to have this experience. Uh, I've never felt comfortable to explore my sexuality before, and I think if I didn't do it, I would probably end up resulting in some resentment with my boyfriend later on. I don't really know what to do. What is the most ethical way to move forward here? Look, it's a fine thing to use another human being, so long as you're using that human being in a way they want to be used by you. And to find that human being, you're just going to have to hang that shingle out. It's great that your boyfriend is willing, I guess, to let you have your first experience with a woman on your own, isn't demanding, as some boys do when their girlfriends come out as bisexual, that your first experience be a three-way and all about him and his dick. You just need to go to him and say, look, I understand that you're threatened by the idea of me having a relationship with someone else, but... I'm going to have to do a little bit of legwork to at least establish a rapport with someone else before I go to bed with that person because I, I need to feel like I like somebody. You're not going to have – you're not a gay man. You're not going to be able to have a quick and sudden anonymous same-sex lesbian or hot bi chick hookup on your first try. You're going to have to – Put yourself out there, meet some women, chit-chat on some dating apps, and there are dating apps specifically out there for women seeking women. Get on them. Be honest about who you are. You know, you worry about getting on them. A lot of women who are realizing they're bi or just wanting to act on their same-sex attractions for the very first time and are in relationships with men are worried about offending lesbians that they might approach because they're just looking to use and get used by somebody they aren't looking for 
relationship. Well, just put out there that you're a bi woman in a relationship with a man looking for your first same-sex experience and all the lesbians who aren't interested in that won't respond to your ad. You don't have to worry about wasting their time because they won't approach you. And as you know, you say you've been a listener to the show for a while, how many times have I gotten this exact call? From a woman who's just come out as bisexual, is involved with a man, is married to a man, or has a long-term boyfriend that they don't want to leave, and is worried that they're not going to be able to find a woman out there in the world who's willing to meet them where they're at. Seems to me that there are enough bi women out there in relationships with men seeking their first sexual experiences that all of you could get together and take care of each other's needs, use and be used by each other. So... Put it out there. Get online, get on some hookup apps, get on some dating apps, and just be honest about where you're at. You got to push back against your boyfriend's restriction, though, that there can be no relationship. There must be a relationship for you to feel comfortable, to feel safe, to want to be sexual with someone. Again, if not a relationship, maybe use the other R word, a rapport. You want to establish a rapport. And if he's hoping to have a threesome at some point with you and another hot bi chick, that's not going to happen. That's not going to be a bolt of lightning from the blue. You're not going to trip and fall. Uh, three ways negotiate in advance. And he's likelier to get something that, you know, it's totally legitimate. It's fine for straight guys to want to have threesomes with their girlfriends and another woman. I've had plenty of threesomes with my husband and another dude. A threesome is an estimable state. And a desirable thing. And men, straight men, shouldn't be shamed for desiring this kind of, I don't want to say cliche threesome, let's call it threesome classic. Like classic Coke, but for threesomes. Just appeal to him. Just say to him, that'll never happen. You'll never have the threesome that you want to have if I can't at least chat with the women that I'm interested in sexually. At least establish a rapport, at least have some sort of connection. You can avoid the relationship word to make him feel better, but all sexual events, you know, all sexual connections happen between two people in a relationship, whether that's a relationship that they're having for an hour and they're never going to see each other again or a weekend or several months. It's still a relationship, just STRs as I like to call them. Maybe your boyfriend will become a little less threatened over time. Maybe after you get out there and have a couple of experiences and come back to him and you're grateful and excited to tell him about it, he'll be less threatened and you can use the word relationship to describe the things you're having with the other women that you have sex with. And one of those relationships in the end ultimately will make it possible for him to have the thing he'd like to have with you and another woman, that threesome. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to talk about the pandemic. Have you heard there's been a pandemic on? We're going to talk about how the pandemic has impacted our sex lives and how it will continue to impact our sex lives. Now, I made the most important call early in the pandemic that the pandemic was going to bring glory holes back. And I was right about that. But that was just a guess. My guest, Dr. Justin Lay Miller, has actually done the research 
and how the pandemic has impacted and will continue to impact our sex lives. He's not just guessing. He's a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the terrific book, Tell Me What You Want, host of the terrific, equally terrific sex and psychology podcast, I Am a Devoted Listener. He's also a scientific advisor to the sexual wellness brand Love Honey and, most importantly, a frequent Savage Lovecast guest. Hey, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. Thank you for coming back on the show. Hey, Dan. It's always a pleasure. So you're here to talk about the results of a nationally representative study that you conducted that looked at where our sex lives and relationships stand at this point in the pandemic, what people learned, what they did differently during the pandemic, and what they plan on doing or not doing differently going forward. So this is kind of a what you got segment for us. You did the research. You're a sex researcher. Tell us what you got. What did you find out? So this was a demographically representative U.S. survey that was a joint partnership between the Kinsey Institute and Love Honey. And I'm so excited about the data because this is the first time in my career where I was ever able to get a truly representative sample of the population. Uh, these types of studies, as you know, are very expensive uh, to carry out. So it was only through this unique partnership that we were able to get this data. And it's really this treasure trove of information about exactly what you said, what happened during the last year and a half or so, where do things stand today, what's happening in the future. So um, <laughs> I just don't even know where to start because yeah, give there's like us, a what million are, data points. What's the, what are the broader themes? There's a million data points. I looked at some of uh, what you emailed to me, but what are the broad themes? So one of them is that, you know, the story of how this pandemic affected our sex lives is a tale of different effects for different people. So if you look at something like sexual frequency, are people having more sex or less sex now? Americans are split into roughly three groups. So there's about a third of Americans who said, you know, nothing in their sex life has really changed, um, which I think makes sense because this pandemic wasn't felt the same way throughout the country and across different relationships and so forth. But of the remaining two thirds, they're split between those who are having more sex than they've ever had before and those who are having less sex. So, you know, we're really all over the place there. Um, and the same is true with masturbation. Uh, you know, some people are doing it more, some people are doing it less, some people are doing it just the same. So I think what all of this tells us is that, you know, the way that these really stressful experiences impact us and our sex lives really depends a lot on the individual. And not everybody responds to stress in the same way. So for some, it depresses or decreases their libido, uh, whereas for others, it increases it. And so I think that's where we really need to kind of understand ourselves and our own sexual psychology uh, instead of just looking at and assuming that there's one dominant effect that happens to everybody. It's really a paradox of, uh, of human sexuality. As you know, anyone who writes uh, or studies human sexuality, people are obsessed with being normal. They want to be told that whatever it is they're doing is normal. And it's true. Whatever you're doing is normal. What you found was some people had more, some people had less, some people stayed the same, whether it was partnered sex or masturbation. So whichever one of those three things you were doing, yeah, that's normal. People don't take that message away, though, no matter how many times we tell people kind of whatever you're doing, at least when it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm, just like when it comes to food, like no two, everyone's cuisines aren't the same, everyone's tastes in food aren't the same. And that itself is normal. But people are so hung up on what's normal. And yeah, I hear all the time from people who are worried that they 
are having more or having less or doing about the same uh, during the pandemic, and they're worried that they're falling behind or become sexually too active or wondering why if everyone else has been impacted by the pandemic, their sex life hasn't been impacted by the pandemic. Yeah, and I think that ultimately that speaks to the fact that all of us, our brains are wired a little bit differently when it comes to sex, right? Where for some people, it's much easier to have your sexual desire inhibited, whereas for other people, um, not so much. You know, it's, it's much easier to get sexual desire stimulated. And I think that's where this idea of the dual control model of sexuality uh, popularized by Emily Nagoski and Come As You Are makes a lot of sense. You know, you have this gas pedal and this brake uh, in the brain as an analogy, if you will, for how we respond to sexual cues and to stress and so forth. And so for some people, that break is just much easier to depress. And for other people, that accelerator is much easier for you know people to kind of get revved up. So I think understanding where you are in all of this is is really the key. And there's not one right or, or best way for, for things to work. So let's talk about what people did maybe a little differently. You say you found that 52% of Americans tried at least one new thing. And for a significant chunk of those Americans, the one new thing they tried was butt stuff. <laughs> yes. So this was um, interesting. It, it builds on some of the work we did at the Kinsey Institute last year, where we were looking over time what's happening in people's sex lives and relationships. And, you know, one of the big themes is novelty. You know, people were trying new and different things across the board. And, you know, that could be sharing and acting on their fantasies, incorporating sex toys into their masturbation or partnered sex. But anal stimulation was one of the things that popped up for a lot of people. And, in this demographically representative sample, we have 8% of Americans, almost one in 10, said that they tried butt stuff for the first time, right? So people were kind of getting very sexually experimental. Um, we also had about one in 20 who said they tried BDSM activities for the first time. And I know that those numbers might not sound huge, but if you consider the fact that the vast majority of Americans have never tried anal stimulation or have never tried BDSM, you know, relatively speaking, these are really big increases. Are they bigger for straight people? Because one of the things about this study is it had a really large sample size of queer identified people, gays and lesbians, bi and trans folks, pan folks. And, you know, gay people probably already were doing anal. They didn't do anal for the first time during the pandemic. So if you take the gays and the queers out of the sample size, did you find that maybe it's higher than 8% tried anal for the first time among straight people? Was it, would, would that change sure. that stat in a significant way? You took out the queers. Sure. And so this was one of the things we did look at in the data. This was a sample overall 2000 Americans. And then we did an oversample of a few hundred extra uh, LGBTQ folks. And so that allowed us to kind of do this comparison between what's going on for sexual minorities and for cishet um, populations. And, you know, if you look at something like anal sex, yes, the practice of that baseline is much higher for the community of men who have sex with men. So that increase in anal stimulation is much larger for uh, the cisgender or heterosexual population. But if you look at the overall sort of shift toward kink, you know, a lot of Americans said that their sexual interests became kinkier during the pandemic. That was actually a bigger increase for LGBTQ folks than it was for the cisgender heterosexual folks. So some of the changes that 
occurred in our sex lives were a little different depending on whether you were part of the LGBT community or not. You know, when anybody tosses out the expression cishet, I like to jump in and say to all the cishets out there listening, it's not an insult. We don't mean it as an insult. And actually, we like you. We reproduce ourselves out of your bodies. You're very necessary. There aren't gay people in the future if there aren't cishets right now getting it on. So gold star for the cishets who are cranking out the new queers. Uh, Not an insult. So gay queer people were more likely to experiment with BDSM. Straight people were more likely during the pandemic locked in to maybe begin to explore their butts. What are people taking forward? What are people going to, you know, God, if we can ever get past this fucking pandemic, if the fucking rube idiots and Trump supporters will ever get themselves fucking vaccinated and stop holding the whole country hostage to make Joe Biden look bad. If we can get on the other side of this, what are people going to carry forward from their experiences with sex during the pandemic? So based on our data, it looks like more people plan to be more experimental in the future than plan to be less experimental. So it's around 40% or so of Americans who say that now and when the pandemic is over, they plan to try more new and different things in bed, uh, whereas it's less than 20% who say they plan to be less experimental. So I think we're seeing this it's not just a short-term shift toward kink and sexual experimentation. I think it represents a bigger shift in the way that we're thinking about sex. You know, this whole historical period we've been through that we're currently still going through uh, has pushed a lot of people to, to become more adventuresome in the bedroom. And I think it makes sense for a lot of reasons. You know, people needed something new uh, to experience. And we know that novelty tends to increase sexual arousal. And I think it can be a really healthy thing to try new and different things. And, you know, as a sex researcher and educator, one of the biggest pieces of advice we give people when they're trying to boost passion in their relationship or keep passion alive is to mix it up and try new things. And people finally took that advice and, (laughs) you know, their relationships seemed to be stronger as a result. And that was one of the other really cool things about the study is that a majority of Americans in relationships that they feel more sexually passionate about their partners, that they're happier in their relationship. They feel more committed, more invested. And so for all the talk of doom and gloom about how this is going to destroy relationships and lead to a divorce boom, you know, the data are actually pretty reassuring. You know, it's not to say that everybody in their relationships are better, but a majority are saying, hey, things are actually better. This made us stronger. And part of that has to do with the fact that they mixed it up and tried new things in the bedroom. You know, I hate to be a cynic or a skeptic, but it seems to me that you're going to want to do a little research down the road to see if people who said they were going to keep mixing it up, keep experimenting, keep playing, uh, kept it up. Because some part of that, you know, we did all these crazy things during the pandemic and we're going to stick to that has the ring of, yeah, we're going to keep baking bread. You're going to keep baking that sourdough bread that we learned to bake during the pandemic. Going to keep up with the knitting hobby that I took up during the pandemic. And, you know, I don't think as many people are going to be baking bread a year from now who were baking bread a year ago. And maybe the same will be true of the butt stuff, but I hope not. I hope people keep up with the butt stuff. I'm a very much a pro butt stuff kind of guy, but I wonder. I, I totally thought you were going to say that butt stuff, that butt stuff saves relationships. But, um, <laughs> well, it's been know, my experience that butt stuff is a <laughs> contributing factor to a healthy connection. But, you know, all those those experiences are deeply subjective. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right that 
you know, people may have found things now that have helped them to get through this experience, but whether they're going to keep up with those things in the future, yeah, that's totally an open question. And we know that people are not necessarily good predictors of their future emotional states and their future behaviors. We tend to think we're better at predicting the future (laughs) than we actually are. So I think that's an important caveat. And so we're going to keep an eye on this and, you know, see what happens going forward to see if people you know, keep following this trend towards sexual experimentation, or if when things return to some state of semi-normal, if things kind of revert back in the other direction. What would you say to people out there, you know, you've observed and the, the data show that a lot of people had more sex, you know, forged deeper connections, got more experimental with the partners that they were quarantined with. What would you say to people for whom that didn't happen? where they felt more sexually disconnected from their partner, they weren't experimenting, uh, their, their libido was tanked or their partner's libido was tanked. Is that the death knell for that relationship? What should people who are in that situation, who are listening to us talk about everybody who is doing butt stuff and experimenting with BDSM and is going to keep doing that or says they're going to keep doing that, people are listening and thinking, well, that didn't happen for me in my relationship. How should they feel? So I think, again, it's important to go back to that point that people experience this situation in very different ways. And so one of the variables we didn't talk about was whether or not people had children in the home. And we know that, you know, for people with kids where suddenly you didn't have as much alone time with your spouse or your partner, um, and you had more of these childcare responsibilities thrust upon the relationship, you know, that was a totally different set of factors than say um, a couple that was just living alone. So, you know, it's okay that not everybody experienced the same improvements and changes in their sex life because everybody experienced a different set of stressors. And also even within relationships, you know, there were some cases where partners just went in totally different directions, where for some people, sex is this coping mechanism. It's this escape from stress. Whereas for other people, stress just really inhibits sexual desire. And so for people who moved in those opposite directions, things actually became a lot worse for their intimate lives. And so I think one of the keys here is that if you were in that situation where you and your partner felt this very differently sexually, it's really important to get a better understanding of each other's sexual psychology so that you can find ways to support one another and to cultivate a healthy sex life. And so, you know, in those cases where people sort of respond to stress in totally different ways, you know, scheduling sex is one of the things that can often help with that because you're creating this dedicated time to be together, to connect, to build up anticipation. And so when you can kind of put it on the schedule, that can be a healthy way of dealing with those sort of desire discrepancies. That is a real stumbling block for a lot of people. Oh my God, if it's scheduled sex, then it's not spontaneous. It's not going to be passionate. And my reply is always swingers and kinksters. The swingers who meet up with people or go to swinging conventions, that is scheduled sex. And it's great. That's why they keep going. The same thing with the hardcore kinksters. You know, somebody just doesn't appear by chance in your dungeon interested in everything that you're interested in. That's a negotiation and you make a date and you schedule that. So what work, you know, and everybody out there who's like, oh, scheduled sex must be terrible also has it in the back of their heads that the swingers and kinksters are having a lot of crazy sex and enjoying themselves. And they are. And it's all scheduled. 
It's so true. And I think that that's a great analogy. You know, just because a sex party is on the schedule, you know, it's happening Friday night at this club at 10 o'clock or whatever. Does that make it less fun because it was scheduled? No. Right. In fact, it can have the opposite effect of helping you to build up anticipation and excitement. And you know, this is going to happen and you're going to be in the right mental space for it because you're going to prepare uh, for that situation. You know, you're not going to be checking your work emails. 10 minutes before you walk into the door of a sex party, right? And so you can think about it the same way for one-on-one sex. If you put it on the schedule, you have time to prepare mentally and arrange the rest of your life around sex. Uh, And I think that that's a good way to think about it. All right, before we let you go, there's a divide growing out there between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed vaccine passports. Are people establishing a kind of vaccine passport requirement, vaccinated people, for their sex lives? Some of them are, you know, this was one of the things that we asked about was whether or not being vaccinated was a deal breaker for being involved with somebody sexually in the future. And for many people, it was. But I think looking at vaccination status, there was something else that was really fascinating to look at, because there were some people who kind of thought that, well, if you get vaccinated for COVID, that's going to give you this license to kind of do whatever you want in your sex life. And that's going to promote increased sexual risk taking. And, you know, people always say this whenever there's a vaccine, you know, they said the same thing for the HPV vaccine. They said, if you give this to adolescents, that's going to give them a license to be promiscuous and to, you know, do whatever they want. And the data don't bear that out. You know, just like with the HPV vaccine, that doesn't increase sexual risk taking. What we find in our data is that getting vaccinated for COVID does not increase propensity to take sexual risks either. It's actually the unvaccinated people who say that they're more likely to take sexual risks in the future and who are less likely to practice safe sex. Well, that tracks. <laughs> it does. So, Dr. Justin Miller, for, for anyone out there listening who's interested in, in doing a deeper dive into the data, where can folks find your study and, and read it? You can find information on my website at sexandpsychology.com. Uh, you can also find information on Love Honey's website as well. Dr. Justin Lay Miller, research fellow, Kinsey Institute, author of the terrific book. Really go get it if you haven't already read it. Tell me what you want and host of the Sex and Psychology podcast. Dr. Lay Miller, it's always a blast when you come on the show. Um, thank you for coming back and sharing the data with us. Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old bi woman from the Bay Area, and I just have a dating question about vaccinations. So, yeah, it's very much my Bay Area bubble privilege, but pretty much everyone I know personally has been vaccinated for at least five or six months now since the vaccine became available to the general public. And, um, yeah, I think I've just gotten to a place where I forget that some people are still not vaccinated in my immediate social circle. And I was just supposed to go on a date with this person who, you know, I made the mistake of not asking whether or not he was vaccinated, but just, you know, wrongfully assumed that he was. We just had plans to meet somewhere and he asked if I thought they would check vaccination cards and if they if they would let him in if it hasn't been two weeks since his last shot, which I was just like, oh, you're, you were very recently vaccinated and, you know, I'm happy that he got vaccinated and I don't, you know, this was a first date and I don't have a lot of background as to what his rationale was for waiting. Um, 
part of me is curious, just like for my own general knowledge, but I kind of can't help but judge him, I guess, for the fact that he waited so long. And I just don't know how fair that is, because at the same time, I'm like, well, you got vaccinated. That's great. Good for you. I guess it's just kind of an immediate turn off for me that he didn't do it sooner. I don't know. Am I being too judgy? It's just, it's just like my Bay Area privilege. All longtime listeners of this year program know that I am a fan of good judgment. Good judgment is attractive. Bad judgment is repulsive. It is unattractive. And waiting this long to get vaccinated could be a rather conspicuous display and a big turnoff display of bad judgment. Maybe this guy was demonstrating bad judgment and he's no one that you should trust in your bed with your pussy with your body, but there's only really one way to find out. And that's to ask him what the fuck he waited so long for. Maybe he had a reason. I got two shots and both times I got really sick after I'm glad I'm vaccinated. Please don't anybody weaponize my personal experience of having gotten vaccinated to talk yourself or anyone else out of getting vaccinated. Everyone must get vaccinated so we can put this pandemic behind us. But just to be honest, both times, both shots, sick, in bed, three days the first time, two days the second time, I was really down for the count. Now, maybe I'm giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm making excuses. But seems to me that anybody who generally demonstrates good judgment, who waited this long, possibly knew someone who got this sick and was having a hard time blocking out the time just in case they got sick, you know, people have busy lives. People have work to do. Maybe, like I said, bending over backwards here, maybe, you know, everybody who knew got vaccinated right away as soon as they could got really sick. And he didn't have the openness in his schedule in case he got really sick until now. Or maybe he was what they call vaccine hesitant for dumb or bullshit, or both reasons. And maybe he is vaccine compliant now because an employer mandate came down and he finally went and got his ass vaccinated. If it's the former, if he was afraid of getting vaccinated because there just wasn't space in his schedule to like be out for three days as I was and some other people were, maybe he gets a pass, maybe. But if what you hear from him bunch of bullshit conspiracy theories about microchips and vaccines or it being too new or unreliable or there not being enough research when indeed there has been so much fucking research, then maybe you don't fuck him because that is clearly, yeah, that's bad fucking judgment, particularly in the middle of a pan fucking demic. Shouldn't be afraid to ask him, though. Shouldn't be afraid to ask him, dude, what the fuck? Stakes here are really low. He's not a boyfriend, doesn't live with you. You're not married to him. The consequences of hearing from him that he is an idiot that you don't want to sleep with or him confirming that for you are low and they all fall on his shoulders. He's the one who's not going to get into your pants. So if you're curious, I don't think it's judgy at all. That was your question. Is this judgmental of you? I don't think it's... Well, I guess it's a little judgmental, but it's an area where you're being appropriately judgmental. If he was taking risks 
with his health and the health of everyone around him where this virus is concerned, uh, that's not somebody you want sticking his dick, which can be a viral vector in your pussy. Not somebody I would want sticking their dick in me. So you feel free to, to be judgy about this, to make that judgment call. Everybody we let into our beds, everybody we let into our mouths, everybody we let into our orifice is a judgment call. Judge him on this, but go and get a little bit more information from him before you make the final judgment. Hey, Dan. I am a 30-year-old woman living in St. Louis, and I have a question for you regarding, um, I guess, non-monogamy for around 10 years, and we were long distance for the first couple of years. During that time, we kind of don't don't tell policy, and uh, any, you know, kind of any kind of relationships I had with women at the time, not an issue. Uh, any men, don't ask, don't tell. And on his side, I, I did want to know. I, I like it. I'm into it. And we've had some experiences with threesomes that are special guest stars. And um, at one point, for a short period, we did also have a woman approach us. And we dated for as, as a, not really a triad. She was dating us for around three months. It wasn't a great experience for everyone involved, just uh, us for being inexperienced and her not communicating her needs and all of it, all around was not great. And my partner got hurt more so than I did. And it really put a sour taste in his mouth for anything like that. So since then, we've had maybe two threesomes and it's been about five years. Over the past few years, I've really been wanting to see women again, and I miss them wholeheartedly. I miss women. I don't know. It feels like it feels like I'm kind of missing a part of myself, and there's this longing to see someone again. Um, I I want to have sex with women, and I I don't not want to be with my partner also. I don't know how to fix that. So I, I don't know how to approach this with him. I've, he knows, and I've tried to approach it before, but I'm not great with words, and I just don't know how to sit down and say, hey, what can we do to make you comfortable with this and happy? Speaking of making space in a marriage, making some room in a marriage, your husband is going to have to make some room in this marriage that would allow you to have same-sex sexual encounters with other women. He's not going to walk up to you and offer you that space. You're going to have to ask for it. You're going to probably going to have to fight for it. And that may be a contentious process. You may have to go to him and say, look, I love you. I'm bisexual. I have to have sex with other women. Not all bisexuals need to have open marriages or open relationships because they got to get some of what they're not getting at home. Not true for all bisexuals, but true for you and true of many of the bisexuals that I've heard from. Now, of course, those bisexuals are having problems in a monogamous relationship and they call me because they have a problem. This is one of the problems that some bisexuals have. The inference we should make is not all bisexuals feel this way. The inference we should make is there are lots of bisexuals out there in monogamous relationships who aren't having a problem, who aren't calling in to tell me about the problem that they're not having around this issue. But you are having this problem. And you're not the only bisexual who has had or will have this problem. You miss 
you're in an opposite sex committed relationship, you're married to a man, you miss eating pussy. Probably something he's not going to want to hear. Probably something that he would like to pretend isn't the case. You're going to have to go flip that table over. You're going to have to upset that apple cart. You're going to have to go in there and say, look, I need and want this to be happy and sexually fulfilled and to not be resentful in this marriage, not be resentful of you so that I don't look at you and see why I can't, but so that I look at you and see why I can. And so how do we get there? How do we allow for now in a joyful way, what we used to be able to allow for me and for us in a joyful way? Like we had this terrible experience. We dated this other person. It went not well and you felt burned. And now here we are. If I were having this conversation with him, if he were my husband, if I were in your shoes, I would encourage him to zoom out just a little bit because that standard, I got my feelings hurt or I did this thing and it didn't go well. People apply that standard often when it comes to opening up a relationship or non-monogamy. Ugh, that didn't go well. Never doing that again. Not a standard we apply to monogamous or closed relationships. We allow for the possibility that we will enter into a closed or monogamous relationship. It could go very poorly. And the takeaway is always wrong person. The takeaway isn't never doing monogamy or a closed or exclusive relationship ever again. And yet people don't seem to be capable of doing the same thing when it comes to openness. It may not have been the having of three ways or dating another woman together. That was the problem. But the woman you were dating together or it being new to you both as a couple to date somebody else, ways in which you may have been unkind or ungenerous with each other or taking each other for granted and feelings got hurt. And you guys can, as the couple, correct for that going forward. If indeed you're going to date other people together, which maybe you're not, maybe you just need to get out there and eat some fucking pussy. But if that's what you need to be happy, got to tell him. Hopefully your husband wants you to be happy, not stewing in anger and resentment about what you don't have in your life because of him. That's an acid. People sometimes pour on their relationships. Over time, that corrodes a relationship. A sense of sexual fulfillment, even in a committed relationship, a sense of some degree of sexual autonomy is really important. And in his absence, people will burn down their relationships. People will slam their hand down on self-destruct buttons. One of the things you might want to say to him when you have this conversation is, I don't want to find myself in a circumstance where I, on impulse and out of desperation, cheat. I want to do this honestly and ethically. And that means having right now a difficult conversation in advance instead of at some point down the road, having a much more difficult conversation in the wake of. Hello, Dan. This is a gay male in the Northeast. Um, my husband and I have been talking about opening up a relationship. We've been together for 11 years, married for seven. We are both in our late 30s. And I kind of wanted to know what are some do's and don'ts when you are trying to open up a relationship from monogamy. Short question, not a simple question. Short question, answer could go on for hours. You can buy books about non-monogamy, books about opening relationships, the audio versions of them, and listen to them for 10, 12 hours if you want to cover every base. So I'm just going to keep this answer simple and short. 
the key here is communication and respect. And that's true whether your relationship is open or closed. That's true whether you're opening the relationship up or closing it back down. Communication and respect. You and your partner, you have to figure out together what you need from each other, what kind of rules you need to lay down for his comfort, for your comfort, what you need to see from him so that you still feel like his first priority, even if he's allowed to seek sex elsewhere and what he needs to see from you. So he still feels like your first priority, even as you're looking at grinder on the couch next to him some night, talk about it. That's something that may not be allowed. That may be a rule that you guys make. If you both want kind of not to think about it too much, okay, don't look at grinder when I'm sitting next to you on the couch. That can be a rule. Sometimes people are aroused by their partners looking for sex elsewhere. And so your rule might be, let me watch you on grinder while you're, looking for other dick. I can't tell you what your rules should be. I just can tell you, you need to establish them and respect them and both know, even as you establish them, that you can revise them and very likely will revise them down the road. A relationship about communication and respect and a long-term successful sexual relationship, exclusive or not, that needs constant communication. And people in open relationships sometimes feel like they have more to communicate about than people in closed relationships. That may be true. So that's my advice. I said I was going to keep it short and I didn't succeed at keeping it short, but that's my advice. Communicate, 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 communicate. Better to overtalk this. Better for the negotiations to go into what seem like too many specifics than for your partner to accidentally step on a mind that he didn't know was there or for you to do the same. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Laura B. tweets, currently listening to that fake Dan Savage talk about butt stuff while dusting a Catholic altar. Is that a kink? Thanks, hashtag Savage Lovecast, for being with me during my workday cleaning houses. Thank you for taking us along on the ride, Laura B. Honored, in particular, to be along for the ride when you're cleaning God's house. IGBY82 tweets, is the 69 position still a thing amongst couples? IGBY82 or IGB82 included a poll, but IGB doesn't have many followers. And so far, I am the only person who voted in his poll. Yes or no, is 69ing still a thing? And I voted no. So as of now, 100% of those polled say no, 69ing is not a thing amongst couples. If you feel differently, you can go and vote at IGBY82, and why not give IGBY82 a follow while you're there? And finally, Affaline fan tweets, I guess we will never be rid of the sex success stories. I hate them so much. I skip past it, but it still pisses me off because I love your advice, and it's time wasted. We can all read Dear Penthouse Forum if we want to. Love you, Dan, but please make it stop. Noted, we are reassessing success stories and we will be soliciting feedback about the show from our subscribers very soon. If you love or hate success stories, let us know. And thank you, Affaline, for letting me know that I'm not the only one out there who remembers Panhouse Forum. All right. Thanks to everybody who posted your social media accounts about the Lovecast this week. We appreciate that very much. And if you want me to potentially read your tweet on next week's show, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now listener response calls. Hey, Dan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm responding to episode 781 regarding Dave Chappelle's latest comedy special. 
As a middle-aged, black, gay, cis male, I loved his special and it was a topic of joyful discussion with both my straight nephew and bisexual niece. My feeling is he's not running for political office nor trying to take away any of our rights. He's a comedian with his own perspective that I find hilarious. To my fellow LGBTQ plus brethren, please check your human rights advocacy at the door. Enjoy a good laugh, then pick up the advocacy mantle and go forth afterwards. This is a response for the first caller from last week's episode who recently fucked her ex and had seems like had really great sex and then is now reeling from a new set of rejection. It seems like it's your expectations that are getting in the way here. You talked about how great it was to come during fucking him and then you jumped directly to how you fell in love with him again. And it seems like you're taking the amazing new relationship energy and you're turning that into love because you already have a bond with this person a friendship and putting a lot of pressure on him the baby thing seems like it might be a lot of pressure and if you could zoom out a little bit and see it for what it is which is like you had great sex and that lusty amazing like i want you electricity that's kind of your pussy talking and that's great like it's i don't mean that in any negative way that is the best and so let your pussy have all the fun if he's down and try to recontextualize what you want from this relationship because a baby and pressure in a relationship, it seems like you guys already tried that and you mutually agreed that that wasn't what you were doing. And so if you could just enjoy the friendship and the sex and take off the pressure, he might be into it. Otherwise, you should definitely take Dan's advice and go fuck somebody else with a big girthy cock who's going to make you come. But beware of the same trap that everybody who makes you come, it doesn't mean you're in love with them because that is a loop that I see so many people run and it almost never ends well. This is a response for the caller who wanted to know what to call it when her partner slides his dick in between her labia. And I think the solution is staring you in the face, hopefully not literally, but um, lip syncing. Obviously, the equivalent of hot dogging, but with labia, is hot pussying. I thought of the toy from 1980 called The Wet Banana. It was like the slip and slide. Some people will remember it. Here's Wet Banana. You can dash and splash on Wet Banana like Billy. You can dip and slip like Ricky. Slippery wet fun for the whole gang. Could that be Mom on Wet Banana? It is. My group of friends provided some names for us. Shimmy dipping. Clit boarding. Puddle stubbing, sneaking behind the curtain, drag stripping, dowsing, wet mapping, and my own personal favorite, schlitzing. You're welcome. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? The best way to get us your question or your comment is to use the voice memo app on your phone. Record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also still call us at 206-302-2064, but we really do prefer those voice memos. The sound quality is so much better. The deadline to submit your film for Hump 2022, my dirty little porn film festival, is coming up. It's in December. Now is the time to grab a partner or some partners and make your own smutty little flick to submit. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the info you need about getting your movie into Hump. And a reminder that my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now, so go grab a copy anywhere books are sold. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Justin Lane Miller on Twitter at Justin Lane Miller. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for downloading.